endless expanses of his wisdom to the unfathomable depths of his mercy. We study God's nature in order to illuminate the contours of a God whose greatness eludes definition. May this exploration awaken a sense of reverence, humility, and wonder within your soul as we journey together into this boundless and eternal nature of God, encountering the one whose attributes are not just lofty ideals, but living truths that shape the very fabric of our reality. As we draw closer to the source of all existence, may we stand in awe of him who defies comparison, for there is none like him. Hey, uh, like Jason said, my name is Daniel. I come to you from the East Valley of Phoenix, Arizona, which is just expanding at rates that even for us living there, we, we don't understand. It's absolutely crazy. And so um, it's always a privilege to get to come up here and be here with you. Um, I just want to tell you, if you're here and you're new, you're checking this whole thing out, trying to find like the greatest church in the Pacific Northwest, I believe you found it here in your leaders and your staff. This place is amazing. And so any opportunity I get to come back is exciting. It's always a good thing when you get invited back. It means you didn't really do like a terrible job the first time. Like it's at least good enough for like they'll, they'll bring you back, you know. So um, it's really good to get to be here with you. Usually at this point, I put up a picture of my family to show like that I'm relatable and that I'm a dad and a husband, but I did that last time. So this time I'm just going to flex on you. All right. I want to show you a picture. This is my buddy Brock Purdy right here. So uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. If you don't know who Brock Purdy is, he's the starting quarterback for the 49ers right now. And he grew up in our church. He just literally was like a normal kid in our youth groups and was in my college ministry for years and years. And God is writing just an incredible story through this young man. And whether or not he wins the Super Bowl, even though I'm believing for the favor of God for the 49ers <laughs> to win it, whether or not they do, man, it's just, it's been so awesome to watch this guy steward something that is just so much bigger than himself. And so just know this kid is the real deal. His family is amazing. And so I proudly stand here wearing a Brock Purdy jersey telling you I'm friends with him. So it makes me cooler than you. All right. <laughs> totally kidding. But hey, if you brought a Bible, which I hope you did, open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, we're going to walk through that story that we just read because I, I want to talk about this thing that we, I think, sometimes overlook. It's almost like a, oh yeah, like Christians, are, they're supposed to be kind and compassionate, but I don't think we really truly understand it. So if you brought a Bible, you turn there, I'm going to pray for us, we'll jump in. Father, God, we're so thankful that we get to gather in the house of God today. Lord, I know sometimes it's hard to even just get here, and so I honor the people that made it here, that fought in the cars, they got their kids into the kids' ministry and are here right now to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that this is a supernatural act where you will speak through one person, but you'll speak specifically and individually to every single person in this place. So have your way this morning in Jesus' name. All God's people said... Amen. So again, I have long sleeve shirts on, so you can't see right now, but I'm like covered in tattoos, which always freaks people out. And then they assume like, oh, that's cute. This guy was like in jail and then he got saved. And so <laughs> we let the guy have tattoos. And, and then I just blow everybody's theology up when I tell them like, no, like 99% of my tattoos I've gotten as a Christian and most of them as a pastor. And they're like, wait, you can't do that. And it opens up a whole nother can of worms. But I was getting ready to do my whole right arm. And I don't just say that tongue in cheek. If you really want to have the conversation. I'll have it after service with you. But I, I, was getting about, I was getting ready to do my whole right arm 
About 10 years ago, my left arm is all traditional Japanese art in color. It tells the story of life and afterlife kind of in the Japanese tradition. And so I knew this arm I wanted to do kind of traditional Chicano religious art. And so I needed a new tattoo artist because I didn't know anybody that did that. Well, at the church that I was at, this guy walked in and had tattoos and he was a buddy of mine. And so I asked him, hey, who's doing your tattoos? He gave me the number of this guy named Lorenzo. So I text Lorenzo. I tell him, hey, I'm looking to get some tattoos done. And he goes, okay, I'll come to your house Saturday at one o'clock. And I was like, usually I go to a tattoo shop, but you're going to come to my house. I would find out later that meant that he wasn't a licensed tattoo artist, but that was a detail that he left out for me, you know? So Saturday at one o'clock, we, you know, clear our calendar. We're ready for Lorenzo to show up and one o'clock rolls around and he's not there. 1.30, nothing. 2 o'clock, nothing. I'm texting this guy, and he's like, yeah, man, I'm on my way, right? The classic, I'm 15 minutes out. This dude, I kid you not, he walks in the door of my house for the first tattoo appointment with me at 5 o'clock p.m. I'm like, dog, how do you show up late four hours to anything? Like, how is that even a thing, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm kind of frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm just like, man, come on. There's no respect of time. Like, four minutes I could possibly understand, but four hours? And so I'm ready to, like, give this guy a piece of my mind. And then I see him get out of the car. And what starts walking towards my house is this really large, about 275-pound dude that looks like he just got out of prison. I would, again, later find out he had just gotten out of prison. And so I was like, look. I'm not going to tell him I'm frustrated because I'm kind of scared of him and I don't want to tell him that, right? And all of a sudden, Lorenzo walks up and truthfully, I, I joke about it that if he came to our church in Phoenix with our large security team, they would alert to him. They'd be like, look, we got to have somebody watching this guy because on the outside, Lorenzo looks kind of scary. Again, he spent 16 years behind bars and he looks like he spent 16 years behind bars. But what walked up to the door was all of a sudden this man that I started to realize was pretty broken. And in our very first encounter, God nudged me with this thing that I've now understood as kind of the Holy Spirit's prompting to just be kind to this guy, to just be compassionate, to show grace towards him, even though he was four hours late to the first appointment. And so what unfolded between Lorenzo and I was this really unlikely friendship between this pastor in the suburbs and this guy who lived a life completely different than mine. And what I got to hear over the next few months of him doing my tattoos was his story. And Lorenzo's story is a sad one. He grew up in a single parent home and his dad went back to Mexico basically when he was born. His mom would have two other kids with other guys and she was addicted to drugs. And so basically by eight or nine years old, Lorenzo was his brother and sister's primary caretaker. So often what would happen is Lorenzo would get into a spot where his, kid, his siblings had no, not, nothing to eat, and so he would resort to small acts of crime to literally buy their food. Well, when he was 17, he walked into a Best Buy, he stole a speaker that was worth a couple hundred bucks, and he got arrested. He didn't know at the time, because he was given a public defender that didn't really tell him much, that, hey, I'm going to make this thing go away. But in making it go away, he made him agree to take a felony on his record as an adult. So at 17 years old, he gets a felony for stealing a $200 speaker from Best Buy. Seven or eight months later, he's with a friend in a car who he doesn't know is addicted to drugs, has had this brilliant idea of breaking into this house, and Lorenzo was sitting in the passenger seat. He said his friend gets out, tries to kick the door, and doesn't even get through the door. And he says like 30 seconds later, the police come, and they arrest Lorenzo as the getaway driver for a breaking and entering into a home. Strike two, at 18 years old, he gets sentenced to 26 years in prison. He gets put into a cell and the world moves on without him. Phones are created. He's never seen one. He's never experienced the internet. And so after, you know, good behavior and all that stuff, he does 16 years, gets out of prison, 
And what walks in the door of my house is a man who was terrified of the world. A man who was convinced that he was going to do something and it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but it would end up being his third strike and he was going to just spend the rest of his life in prison. Oftentimes I would go to the bathroom in the middle of like our tattoo session and I would walk back into the kitchen and I would find Lorenzo standing at my counter like this, not moving. I was like, Lorenzo, what are you doing? He's like, man, I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, be rude, but like you're white and I'm brown. And if you say something's missing, they ain't going to believe me, dog. That's strike three for me. So until you're back, I'm going to stand right here. And eventually Lorenzo and I became friends and he got comfortable around my family. And what I started to learn through this bizarre friendship with this guy that truthfully, based on what he had done, based on his actions, because it wasn't just the first appointment he showed up four hours late to, that was kind of the norm. Based on what he was doing, I should have been really frustrated. I should have kind of just pushed him away. But I started to learn the power of illogical kindness, the power of illogical compassion that oftentimes you and I are the recipients of, that we've, we've been shown kindness from God, but we, we struggle often to replicate it to the people that we live life with. And I think my fear is, is that as the world looks at the church, They're pushing us out of the conversations that are happening in culture, and it's not even necessarily because of our convictions and our beliefs, but it's because the world doesn't look at us and think of a people who are kind and compassionate. Yet all throughout Scripture, we see this command of the people of God to be people who are marked by love, that is filled with compassion, that is filled with kindness. And I sit back and I wonder, man, I wonder what the opportunity that is for you and I as we enter into this year in the culture that you live in, what kindness, the doors that it can open to the hearts of people who are far from God, the opportunities that it will give us to share the love of God with other people. But here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to try to go, let's all be more kind. And then we all go, yeah, because right now nobody disagrees that we should all be kind. We all agree with that. We all go, yes, kindness is good. But what I'm not trying to tell you is that we have to figure out how to just be more kind in our own ability. Why I love this series is that I think truly to be the hands and feet of God, to be the mini Christ Christians, the image bearers of God, we have to really truly understand who God is and how good and compassionate he is. And we have to spend time in his presence. We have to spend time in his word. We have to spend time having him imprint his nature on us through the power of his Holy Spirit so that that Holy Spirit can produce fruit out of our life that is kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, mercy, all the things that we want to produce. It isn't something we just do in our own power is what I'm trying to tell you. Here's the big idea I want to spend the next few moments looking at as we open up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. As you truly, friends, when you truly understand God's kindness, here's what it will do. It will allow you to be kind with other people. I believe that especially as we're entering into an election year, there is a massive need for the church to just be seen as kind. And I'm not going to say water down what we believe The gospel is hostile to the world because it says that you and I are the problem, okay? Our our message is one that is hostile in its nature. But one of the greatest indictments against Jesus is that he liked to be around sinners. And sinners just enjoyed being around him. 
He understood that kindness would open the doors of their heart much more than judgment and condemnation would ever. I want to read you a couple quotes that I found this week of uh, journalists talking about their perspective of Christians, just to kind of show you how I think the world sees us sometimes. Herb Cain, the writes for the San Francisco Chronicle, said, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're even a bigger pain the second time around. Catherine Wrighthorn, who's a British journalist, she said, why do born-again people so often make you wish they'd never been born the first time? I don't say this as, hey, this is an indictment against you. It's an indictment against us. I come from a culture where everybody believes the same thing. And what we unintentionally do is we just get confirmation bias and we go, everybody believes this way because of where we are. You live in the exact opposite context. And so what will happen is, is when you're around a bunch of people who don't believe like you, and it feels like we're in enemy territory, we can unintentionally end up creating something where we go, it's us versus them. And I want to try to tell you, friends, there is no them. It's just us. Some of us have been recipients of the forgiveness and the grace and the compassion of God. And now God in his supernatural, mysterious love for us is going to allow us to be a part of his rescue mission for the rest of the lost and broken world who are far from God. But we have to stop seeing them as enemies. We have to see them for being lost and broken that we can show kindness and compassion to. Okay, here's the story that we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says in verse 1 that one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sakes? If you have a physical Bible or a digital one, highlight, underline, circle that word there, kindness. Let me give you a little bit of context for this story. This is one of those stories that I wish was as famous as David and Goliath, right? We all know that story, the little 13-year-old boy that charged after the giant with a slingshot and he kills the giant, and it's this amazing story. I think this story, because it shows us so much about who God is, should be just as famous. This story is one where David has just become king, okay? There, There was a king before him named Saul. Saul was the very first king of God's people. God told him, you don't need to have a king, but they did what we always do. And they said, yeah, but we just want what everybody else has, right? They have one. We want one. So God said, fine, here's your king. His name is Saul. The Bible says he was tall, dark, and handsome. He had every attribute to be an amazing leader, but he was unwilling to do the internal work that it takes to be a true follower of God. And so he had a a real problem with pride. And so eventually, because of his unrepentance, God takes his blessing off of Saul. And he goes and takes this little young boy named David at 13 years old, and he anoints him. He has a prophet named Samuel anoint him as the next king of Israel. And Saul realizes that his blessing has been removed, and eventually his family will no longer reign over the kingdom, and this kid David is going to be the king. And so Saul does the logical thing, and he tries to kill David. Most of David's life between being anointed as the next king at 13 to assuming the throne at 33 is running and hiding from Saul who's trying to kill him. And in the middle of all of that, there's really unlikely friendship forms between Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. Jonathan understood, yo, my dad's kind of crazy, right? Like, I understand God's not for him, he's for you. And so Jonathan would actually like thwart his dad's plan to kill David. And this unlikely friendship forms between Jonathan and David. Well, towards the end of Jonathan's life, they begin to realize, we don't know how this thing's going to end. Most likely, one of us is going to die. And so they sign a pact together. David and Jonathan sign a covenantal agreement together to say, we will take care of each other's kids no matter what happens. 
Eventually, Saul and Jonathan will be killed in battle, and David will assume the throne. What we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David's been king for a few years. It's also been a tumultuous start to his kingdom. There's been people trying to attack the kingdom. He's had to fight wars. He's had to go after and win battles. And right now, this is the first moment where there's been a moment of peace in the kingdom. This is kind of David's first act as king. And he asks, is there anybody left in Saul's line to which I can show kindness? The reason that I had you underline or highlight or circle that word kindness is because we have to remember the the Old Testament. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And when you start to see some of the original language, we can begin to understand what some of these words mean. Because we see kindness and we go, okay, he means like he wants to be nice to somebody. Like, that's cute. Good for the new king, right? Like, good job. But the word there in the Hebrew is not a word that's just like a a passive emotion. He uses a word that is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's a word that most of the time we see it in the Old Testament. It's in reference to God's love and kindness towards us. It's talking about a picture of almost a one-way covenantal relationship between one person and another, usually of which the recipient has done nothing to earn it. David is saying, is there anybody left in Saul's lineage to which I can show illogical, irrational kindness and compassion towards? Now, this wouldn't be a rare request for the king to ask for all the surviving members of the previous king's family to be brought before him because usually the king would make sure there was no threat to the crown and he would kill off all the lineage of the previous king. But David says, that's not why I want his family brought to me. I'm trying to show, has said, God's illogical love to somebody. Here's what David knew that Saul forgot. You know why? It's really interesting to me. When you look at David's sin versus Saul's sin, David outsins Saul a thousand times over. If we did, if God did what we often do in the church where we stack rank sin, we don't talk about it, but we do. We're like, oh yeah, that sin is definitely worse than this sin, right? And it's usually the sins that are different than how we sin. We put those ones up higher. If you were to stack rank sin, David is a thousand times worse than Saul. David did some crazy stuff, but David understood the goal of his time on this earth. For the few years that he was the leader of God's people, he understood the assignment. And the assignment wasn't just to build himself a bigger kingdom, but it was to expand God's kingdom. Here's why I want you to lean in this morning and begin to go, maybe, just maybe, we should really truly look at this idea of compassion and kindness and begin to see the opportunity that's there. Kindness, the the first point I want to make, friends, is that kindness, kindness understands the goal. Why is David's first act as king to show kindness to the previous king's family? Because he understood the goal. The question is, is what is the goal? Man, you ask good questions at this service. Romans chapter two, Romans chapter two, verse four. Here's what it tells us, friends. Here's the goal. Here's the purpose of kindness. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you, person in church this morning? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see That his kindness, it's intended to turn you from your sin. See, we're not kind for the sake of like, oh, we're Christian. We we have to be nice. No, we show the kindness of God because it was his kindness that led us to repentance in the first place. 
God uses his kindness to show us our brokenness. Kindness begins to open the doors for us to see that what we're settling for really truly isn't working. And maybe just maybe there is another way in this person named Jesus that can begin to heal what is broken in me. It can begin to restore the things that I've given up or the things that have been taken from me. See, David understood the goal. Friends, here's the purpose. You and I have been given a few decades on this side of heaven. And on this side of heaven, the only thing that we can do now that we won't get to do in eternity is to help expand God's kingdom, to bring lost people out of the line that the Bible says is directing them to a place called hell, which is eternal separation from God. And we can leverage everything that we have to help bring them into the line where they get to spend eternity with God. But we often forget the goal. We forget that our goal isn't just to get a bigger house and a better career and a bigger family and a nicer car. You will try to find too much meaning in this life if you forget the goal. Here's why we can be kind. Because we understand it was God's kindness that led us to repentance in the first place. David goes, is there anybody that's left that I can show kindness to. So he summons a man named Ziba, verse two, who had been one of Saul's servants. He says, are you Ziba, the king? Asked. He says, yes, sir, I am. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show him, notice this, it's not David's kindness. It's not my ability to be a good person. I want to show him God's kindness. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's son-in-laws is still alive. Notice this, but he's crippled in both feet. The first thing out of Ziba's mouth is that, yes, there is a guy, but he's crippled in both feet. When the Bible gives you little details like this, don't just gloss over it. Notice it. Why would the scriptures mention this? Why would Ziba tell us this? Because it's giving us context that makes this story make sense. He says, there is a guy, but he's crippled in both feet. And he says, where is he? He's in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makur, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makur's home. His name was the hardest name in the Bible to pronounce, Mephibosheth. If you can't pronounce it, just say Captain M, all right? He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. Greetings, Mephibosheth, David said. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. David asked Saul's servant, Ziba, is there anybody left in his family line to which I can show kindness, the illogical, irrational love that God has shown me? And he says, yes, there's one name, there's one man who is disabled. His legs are broken. Remember, this is a, a, a culture that doesn't really truly understand physical ailment. Remember the disciples asked Jesus one time when they saw a person with disability, like, wait, was that his sin or was it his parents' sin that you cursed him for? And Jesus is like, what are you weirdos talking about? Like, it has nothing to do with that. But culturally, they understood physical disability as a spiritual curse. So you have a man, the Bible says, whose legs are broken. He's physically deformed. And then the city he lives in is called Lodabar. Again, Lodabar in the original language translated to English literally means the land of no man's land, land of no pasture. He's living in the middle of nowhere. His legs are broken. And you know what his name is? His name is Mephibosheth. You know what Mephibosheth translated to English means? Shame bearer. You know why his name is Shamebearer? 
Because Mephibosheth has a really tragically sad story, a lot like my friend Lorenzo. Mephibosheth was just a little boy when his dad and grandfather were killed in battle. He was the grandson to the king who was killed in battle and word gets to his caretaker that his dad and grandfather have been killed and she knows the next king is gonna kill this little boy. This little boy is a threat to whoever the next king is. So I've gotta get him out of here. So she tries to run with him and in her running and in her fleeing, she trips and she falls and she breaks both of his legs. So Mephibosheth, of no doing of his own, is marked for the rest of his life as shame bearer. Who every time his name is called is the one who brings shame to this family. And yet David, don't miss this. The first person that he goes, can I show this illogical, irrational love that God has for me to somebody? They go, yes, the opportunity is going to be a guy who can offer you nothing, who lives in no man's land, whose legs are broken, whose name is shame bearer. David goes, bring him to me. And they send a messenger to Lodabar. And I have to imagine the moment that the door opened, that Mephibosheth knew this moment would come. It's taken 10 years since his grandfather's death for this, this moment to happen. But he had to know it would happen eventually, that he would get found in hiding. He was in Lodabar because it was one of the few places that his grandfather was still in favor. And now he's been found out. And he thinks that the king has called him to kill him. And David, when he walks into the castle, his response to him is completely different than he thinks. Mephibosheth throws himself at the feet of the king and just says, I'm your servant. And David says, I know you're really afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't want to kill you. I intend to show you God's kindness, God's compassion. Why? Because it's what God did with me. And my opportunity isn't just to build my kingdom, but to expand God's kingdom. And it would be one thing. It would be one thing for him to do what he does with Saul's property. I mean, it's scandalous enough to go find this guy and to then give him all of his grandfather's land back. I mean, he gives him an estate that's worth millions and millions of dollars in today's economy. That would be one thing. But David goes a step further. And he tells him, I'm not just going to restore your financial blessings that have been taken from you. But I want you to sit at the king's table. I want you to eat at the table with me. Now, again, for the king's table, this is the place where like the best and the brightest and the greatest warriors would sit with the king. It was a, a physical representation of the king's power and authority. So for, think about it. If all the warriors, the best and the brightest who are out at battle, they walk in at the end of the day, they set their swords down, they take their armor off, they go to get ready for dinner and they look up and they go, is that Saul's grandson sitting in a wheelchair at the king's table? To which David would be able to go, yeah, sit down. Let me tell you about the kindness of God. Let me tell you about the God who, while I was in my mess, saw me and gave me a seat at his table. Friends, here's what kindness does when you and I begin to truly understand how kind God has been with us. And we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to produce this supernatural fruit out of us called kindness and compassion. What kindness will begin to do as we give people a seat at the table it begins to restore the dignity back to people. Here's why kindness matters so much. Is kindness, my second point, is it is the thing that restores dignity. See, just like my friend Lorenzo, 
Mephibosheth had stuff done to him that was really truly not his fault, but he thought because of that, his life was relegated to being alone, to being a shame bearer. And when you look at all the stories throughout scripture, what Jesus does is he brings dignity back to people who are lost and broken. And I'm telling you, friends, sitting here today, that is your story. That is my story. That while I was still a far ways off, God saw me and he initiated a rescue plan to come after me, to get me, not to just forgive me so I can go to heaven one day. Yes, that is a byproduct of the amazing gift that we've been given, but also so that I can have a seat at the king's table and I can have the Imago Dei restored back in me, the image of God. And friends, I think we need to remember the person that you think of right now, I go, man, think about that person on Facebook that just drives you absolutely nuts. That one, that person, the Bible says in them is the image of God. And the problem is, is because this broken and fallen world that we live in, oftentimes that image has been distorted and dignity has been lost. It's either been given away by things that they've done or it's been taken away from things that people have done to them. And what we see is we think of enemies and other than what God sees are broken people who need to have the image of God restored back in them. And maybe just maybe the Christians that go, our responsibility is to allow the Holy Spirit to produce a supernatural love in us because God has been compassionate with us. Maybe just maybe it will afford us opportunities to have these conversations as well. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a handful of years ago, there was a pretty big dispute between the LGBTQ community and Chick-fil-A. Like talk about like the greatest battle of, you know, two opposing parties, right? The LGBT community knew that there was something that Chick-fil-A was doing that was antithetical to their way of believing. And so what they did is they started protesting a bunch of the Chick-fil-A's. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a big deal in the church world. We were getting phone calls like, hey, we're gonna start a counter protest and we're gonna protest the protesters and we need people from the church to come out and protest the protesters and we're gonna stand with Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, look, I will stand for a chicken sandwich any day of the week because those things are delicious, but this thing's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I don't know, I don't sit here with con conclusivity to say, hey, this is where I think Jesus would be in this whole debate, but I do wonder if there really was two protests which side of the picket line would Jesus be on? I don't know. But I don't think it's as simple as we often think that it is. Now, here's what's amazing. I, I want to share with you a letter that the guy who started all of the protests against Chick-fil-A wrote about his whole experience of this whole back and forth situation between him and the Chick-fil-A corporation through the president, this guy named Dan Cassie. He wrote a letter and he says, on August 10th, in the heat of the controversy... I got a surprise phone call from Dan Cathy. He got my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. He says, I took the call with great caution. Was he gonna tear me apart, give me a piece of his mind, tell me he was turning his lawyers on me? He said, surprisingly, never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and to hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned, don't miss this, we learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. 
Throughout the conversation, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know where I grew up, my family, my faith, my husband. He said even he met my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and his kids, and I gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than just a cultural Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But don't miss this. He never offered any apologies about his genuine beliefs about marriage. What I'm trying to convince you of is that maybe just maybe we've been lied to. We've been told we have to pick a side. We have to choose option A or option B. And I'm saying maybe just maybe kindness, compassion, affords us the opportunity to stand firm in what we believe. Do not change what the scriptures say. But think about how we have the conversations, when we have the conversations, and how we can be gracious with a world that is hostile to God. I'm telling you, friends, there is a third option that we don't often consider. And I wonder what would happen if a room full of people like this began to understand. Kindness is an incredible door opener to the hearts of broken people. Here's the challenge of even a story like this of David and Mephibosheth is often what we do in Old Testament stories is we go, okay, now go be like David, all right? Now go and love like David and find the Mephibosheths and love them. It's the wrong message. Why this series is so incredible is because do you know who you and I are in this story? You know what this story is an example of? David is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, of the king that would ultimately come and start a new kingdom, who would also assume the throne at 33 years old, and who would look at a bunch of people who the world says, you are shame bearer because of what has been done to you and because of what you've done, who really, truly, if you think about it, you have nothing to offer God. Yet God, in his loving compassion and mercy and kindness towards us, he's gentle with us. He allows us to be in our process and in our broken state as shame bearers in no man's land, God comes running after us. Friends, we're not David. We are Mephibosheth. We are at our best broken and flawed. And what we've been given is forgiveness, not perfection. Good people, perfect people, that's not who goes to heaven. It's forgiven people. I have to remind my church often, you guys are going to be shocked when you get to heaven. There's going to be Democrats there to where they're like, no way. In the same regard, I would say there will also be Republicans there. Because all of this, man, this is all secondary. Let your faith inform your politics. Yes and amen. But don't put your hope in a politician. Put your hope in the savior of the world. And begin to allow him to produce a supernatural fruit that will open the doors and lives of people that you could never dream possible. Here's the thing about that story with Lorenzo that I love, is what unfolded was years and years of friendship. And eventually Lorenzo realized that I was a pastor. And he was like, wait, what? Pastors can get tattoos and we have this whole conversation. And then he started to connect the dots of what the last couple years of our relationship have looked like. And he was like, wait, you, like, why did you just give me your car and let me borrow it for a couple of weeks? And why would you give me money before? And I was able to tell Lorenzo my story 
I said, Lorenzo, your story is my story. I was just as much of a knucklehead. The difference is I had a dad that was a lawyer that could get me out of most of my knuckleheaded decisions that I made. But had he not been around, your story literally would have been my story. And I got to tell Lorenzo about Jesus who met me when I was 20 years old in the middle of my mess, who came running after me. And I got to tell him, and man, here's the best part about following Jesus is not only does he give you forgiveness, but he also gives you purpose. And now you get to be his hands and feet. When you look throughout scripture, God could have sent angels. He could have sent things that were much smarter than us, but you and I are his plan A to reach this world. And there is no plan B. And I got the amazing opportunity to share the message of Jesus with Lorenzo. I got to get into the waters of baptism with that guy. And I got to dip him in the water and watch him come out new. And I sat there and I said, God, this is it. Help me see this world the way that you see it. I see a big, scary, tattooed Mexican guy that's different than me. But God, what you see is a broken and hurting person who needs your kindness and mercy and I can be your hands and feet if I'm spending time with you, if I'm constantly in awe of who you are. And here's what I love about what we get to do as Christians. My last point for you, the thing that I would encourage you to think about is that it's kindness over an extended period of time that is the thing that will change people. We don't change people. It is the love of God that we get to exude that changes people. Mephibosheth's story, I would encourage you to go read. Second Samuel is such rich reading. But Mephibosheth's story doesn't end here in this encounter. David's son Absalom actually tries to overthrow his dad's kingdom. And David has to go on the run again. And he's hiding and he's waiting out to see what's going to happen. Ziba, Saul's servant, finds David and tells him, Hey, remember that guy Mephibosheth, that guy you were kind to and tried to do all that cute stuff with? Like, he's in the, in the back saying he's wishing that you would die out here. And David was heartbroken. Like, how could this guy do this to me? Well, eventually David survives the coup. He comes back into the castle and who does he see sitting there? Mephibosheth. And the Bible says that he's emaciated. He's got a long beard. He looks distressed and he tells the king, since you've been gone, I haven't been able to eat. I've been praying for you. I've been fasting for you. And David realizes Ziba lied to him. Mephibosheth wasn't hoping that he died. Mephibosheth had completely changed and was completely loyal now to the king because of a single act of kindness. It changed the heart of a man. Here's what I'm telling you, friends, is the compassionate, loving nature of God is what changes us. Maybe, just maybe, we can look at the people around us that look different, vote different, believe different, behave different, and we don't have to condone it, but we can be compassionate and kind towards them. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, God, I thank you so much for this room of people that would be here this morning. God, to hear a word from you. God, your scriptures are alive and active. And so we ask, Lord, that it would do what the scriptures say that scripture will do, where it pierces our heart, where it convicts us where we need to be convicted, where it would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And that, Lord, we would walk out of this room different, not through our own power, not through our own ability, but by spending time with you looking at you in the glory of who you are, seeing you in all of your holiness, God, would that begin to produce something out of us that this world is desperate to see and experience for themselves? It is in the mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.